October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast. This episode is called Signs of the Times. Last time we talked about Adventists in the Civil Rights Movement and how it took so long for the church to integrate many of their institutions. And that's all found in the Color Line Part 9. So go check that out if you hadn't had a chance to listen to that yet. Okay, in 1971, Christianity Today published a perceptive piece about Seventh-day Adventists. Evangelical Magazine didn't always do justice to Adventists, in my opinion, but they got a lot right in this article. And there's a reason why they got a lot right in this article, and I'm going to tell you about that in a little bit. But it's worth hearing the first couple of paragraphs. Quote, Seventh-day Adventists take some pride in being called a peculiar people, which indeed they are. They are among the few remaining church groups that believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible. They hold fast to a personal second coming of Christ soon and envision their task as preparing the earth for his return. Their health practices, rather strictly observed, were once considered foolish and quaint. Now, ample scientific support is found for a large share of them. As Christians all over view with alarm the church's slipping hold on their members, Adventists maintain a steady increase in numbers. Their evangelistic programs flourish in many countries, and their hospitals are financially sound and well-operated. A measure of the commitment of a Seventh-day Adventist is his faithfulness in contributing a full 10% of his net income to the church, as well as his liberality in supporting church-related projects, including an extensive parochial school system. How does a church with these strict practices survive in a day of permissiveness? The answer lies chiefly in the guidance given the church by its prophetess, Mrs. Ellen G. White. But herein lies a problem. End quote. Whew. You can sense the mixture of admiration and disapproval. The peril and the promise of Adventism boils down to Ellen White. She's the source of the good and the bad in Adventism. And we know from numerous CT, Christianity Today, articles, how much evangelicals admired, and it seems sometimes obsessed with, the per capita giving of Adventists. In those days, no Christian group gave as generously as Adventists. Now, the author of this CT article offers some examples of this good-bad role which Ellen White plays in the church. On the plus side, the author writes, quote, The church benefited greatly from the genius of Mrs. White's leadership and counsel. She had an uncanny business sense, and she was capable of inspiring men to commit themselves to a life of service, end quote. Personally, I think her husband James had most of the business sense in the family, but no doubt, Ellen's ability to inspire people to give their lives to the movement was indeed an incredible gift, an inspiration that didn't cease after her death. But what about the negative influence of Ellen White? This happens, the author writes, when Adventists lose, quote, sight of the historical situation to which Mrs. White addressed herself, end quote, and is seen in the way in which, quote, ultra-conservative Adventists of today still oppose the use of drugs, they bemoan the fact that Adventist hospitals are like other hospitals. In other words, they believe that what Mrs. White said 
in a particular situation a century ago applies with equal force today, no matter how much times have changed, end quote. In other words, Ellen White said some things about drugs in the 1800s, you know, Avenus should stay away from them. And so this author is writing, you know, does this mean that all the drugs invented since the 1800s, like Avenus should stay away from all of them? Is her counsel on this issue true? And not only in her day, but in any day after her day, no matter what the drug is, you know, do we just stop thinking about the individual drugs and just ban them all? The main problem this author tells us, is that the way the church treats Ellen White hinders Adventists from understanding the Bible. An Adventist, the author writes, quote, may study the Bible carefully, but the final word rests with Mrs. White. Her opinions are considered untouchable. This doesn't stop thinkers in the church from weighing carefully the age of the earth, a new mission of the laity, the remnant church concept, attitudes towards the Catholic church, and a host of other matters. Yet they discuss these topics without comfort and with a sense of guilt, end quote. Now, I've quoted from this article at length. I feel like I've read half of it to you. But I ask that you indulge me just a little bit more before I get to the point of all this. Because I think this Christianity Today article is uncommonly perceptive in giving us a glimpse at the birth of a new kind of Adventism. Dare we call it a neo-Adventism. More on that in a minute as well. Now, the author writes, quote, Free-thinking Adventists may be wanting to have their cake and eat it too. They cherish conservative habits and practices. They are pleased that their children are growing up removed from the atmosphere of protest and drug abuse. Yet they long for the opportunity to speak out on issues that might ultimately destroy the very thing they cherish. Some are satisfied to read and stay abreast of current Christian thought, turning off this part of their knowledge when they go to church and hear enshrined doctrines. Others sit in discomfort and mentally disagree with what is going on. They fear to make their opinions known because of the social ostracism they would suffer. Still others carry on a vendetta severely critical of everything Mrs. White ever wrote or did. As the conservatives hang on, Mrs. White's every word to support their dogma, so these critics tear her writings apart sentence by sentence in an attempt to prove her inconsistent, cantankerous, and mentally ill. Both attitudes do her a grave injustice. It is too bad that Avenus can't pay her the respect she deserves and then continue where she left off, but this would mean seeking answers to difficult questions. It is easier to go on with the task of reconciling her statements to the present and finding out that, after all, she did have the answer. All that was needed was the research to ferret it out. The Avenus faced the challenge of accepting the fallibility of Mrs. White while at the same time preserving the church's commendable characteristics. The predicament simmers in the minds of many and threatens to erupt in a rift-creating encounter. End quote. Okay. The reason why the Christianity Today article could offer such insight into the inner workings of Adventism is due to the fact that it was written by an Adventist missionary and doctor named Stanley Gordon Sturgis. And the reason why I'm quoting Sturgis at length is that the basic dilemma he is outlining is very much a present dilemma. Sturgis rejects those who see Ellen White as mentally ill— I'll call that the Steve Daly approach, okay? He, he has no 
desire to go down that road, just completely demolish and discredit Ellen White. But he also rejects those who he says are slavishly devoted to Ellen White without thinking, you know, just apply it. You don't have to think about whether it applies, just apply it. Sturgis wants a middle course, a course that appreciates and honors Ellen White, but isn't mindless about the culture and context in which she lived. It might seem like a small thing to hope for, but as we're going to find out by the end of this episode, what he wrote was dangerous. Stanley Sturgis began writing for a new Adventist publication that had appeared in 1969 called Spectrum. Writing to an Adventist audience, Sturgis calls out what he sees as a confusing Ellen White policy in Adventism. He writes, quote, The term cult has been applied to the Seventh-day Adventist church because it is believed that Adventists have an extra-scriptural source of authority in the writings of Ellen G. White, end quote. Of course, that is not the denomination's official position. The official position is that Ellen White's writings shed light on the Bible as a lesser light, while, quote, the Bible is the sole source of authority in doctrine, end quote. The problem, according to Sturgis, is that this official position exists only on paper. Sturgis cites an editor of the Review who wrote that Adventists believe Ellen White's teaching authority to be equal to that of the Bible, which is to say... Adventists may formally claim that Ellen White's writings, while inspired, are not scriptural, but functionally, Adventists act as if they are. This seeming contradiction between formality and function is what evangelicals and others found to be so infuriating about Adventism. It's why some, even today, think Adventists are being duplicitous. They say one thing, but they practice another. But those critics are wrong, at least about this. There, there's no historical evidence that Adventists were trying to deceive anybody, that they were trying to be duplicitous, that they that they made these public pronouncements and then went behind closed doors and says, hey, 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 we really snowed Martin, Martin and Barnhouse. Okay, like they don't, there's no evidence that they ever thought that way. Official statements made it clear that Ellen White was not verbally inspired, but that didn't stop many Adventists from believing that she was. And at some point, church leaders decided, let's not contradict them. This led, as Sturgis put it, to an uncritical literalism toward Ellen White. Now, I've noted several times in past episodes how not everyone was comfortable with this or felt this way, how Willie White and Milton Kern and others privately fretted about these issues with Ellen White. Kern, if you'll recall from the Adventist History Extra episode called The Kern Letter, wanted a conference in the 1940s to discuss the nature of Ellen White's inspiration. From his perch at the seminary in those days, Kern also saw the same disconnect between what Adventists say about Ellen White and what they actually practiced. He wrote to M.L. Andreasen, the Great Dane, quote, it's not about what we say, it's about what we do, end quote. In the 1950s, Adventist scholar Siegfried Horn wrote in his diary that Adventist historians were having a hard time doing history without openly contradicting Ellen White's history. And even though Ellen and Willie White had made it plain that she was not an expert on history, Horn noted that the general conference leaders didn't, quote, dare to release her statements that she did not want to be considered an authority on history, end quote. Because if an Adventist historian, for example, wrote a history of the French Revolution that even insinuates that Ellen White got some facts wrong or we learned more about this event that, you know, maybe contra 
contradicts the, the color that she put on the story, there will be hell to pay. Ellen White, of course, was relying on 18th and 19th century historians. And if you wanted a history of the Roman Empire today, no one would think to recommend a book written two or three hundred years ago as if it would be more accurate than something written today. We've learned a lot about Rome in the last two or three hundred years, and we don't go to Gibbons to get the most accurate information anymore. And so even though church leaders knew that Ellen White never claimed to be a historian, that she was relying on other historians, there's a fear of tugging on that thread. As someone at the Ellen White estate told me once, if we grant that Ellen White isn't a historian, she isn't a doctor, she isn't a theologian, she isn't a teacher, she isn't a psychologist, then what is she? What's left? Haven't we just divided up the areas, the, the, the fields that she's writing about, and then and then just given it over to modern specialists in each of those areas, right? She's not a theologian, so let the theologians today speak for her or update her or whatever. She's not a doctor, so let modern doctors speak for her, right? So some have chosen to defend what they knew to be indefensible for fear of tugging on that thread. And so this created a weird limbo for especially young Adventist scholars who wanted to ask questions, the questions that they had been trained to ask and do the research they had been trained to do, but had to tiptoe through the church, worried about bumping into Ellen White, lest they be labeled a liberal and fired. Now you might be thinking I'm just a bit melodramatic about that, but that was the dynamic in the church, as we're going to see in maybe a couple episodes from now. It led to a number of people feeling this spiritual vertigo because they were loyal to the Adventist faith, but didn't feel that they were fully accepted by the Adventist faith. It was a one-way street where some people felt that they had to constantly prove their loyalty to the church, except it didn't work the other way around. So this episode is the beginning of how those private frets over Ellen White that we've talked about in episodes past began to be aired in public by groups of well-trained, professional, and loyal Seventh-day Adventists who wanted to have this conversation, who needed to have this conversation. Let's start back in 1966, when delegates and church members gathered in Detroit, Michigan for the 50th General Conference session. They met in the new convention center, then called Cobo Center, which was one of the largest in the world. Perhaps for the first time, the GC session was even taped and aired on Channel 9 locally, competing in the same time slot as Perry Mason and Bonanza. Now, for being a people famous for not liking fiction or theaters, the GC sure know how to put on a show. Kobo Arena went dark as people heard the deafening roar of a rocket. The moon landing was only a few years away. Then a giant screen lit up and showed video of Adventist missions from around the world. I'm imagining people, like everybody knew a missionary, right? You, you knew of somebody who was in such place. So maybe you're looking for your friends or your acquaintances on the, on the video. But the video only lasted four and a half minutes. And then trumpets blasted and a thousand missionaries began marching into the arena carrying the flags of their countries. It was the parade of nations. And it made an impression. An impression that this was a missionary church. Its missionaries were its heroes returned from glorious battle. Now, a general conference session was the place to be, all right? One retired pastor who lived in Michigan, okay? Just so in case you guys don't know, Detroit is in Michigan. 
This retired pastor lived in Michigan, yet couldn't afford to make it to Detroit. So <laughs> he decided to do a little side hustle. No, he didn't drive for Uber. What he did do, though, was dig up worms. Thousands and thousands and thousands of worms and sold them as bait. He did this for weeks and weeks and weeks and in order to make enough money to make it to Detroit. That's how bad he wanted to get to the general conference session. President Ruben Figure announced his retirement in the Motor City, and so took the time to reflect on his 12-year tenure. Figure had seen the church nearly double during his time at the top, and had good reason to feel good about his presidency. Figure highlighted these achievements, but he also highlighted the progress the church had made in integration. He told the delegates that, quote, progress has been made in removing age-old barriers of prejudice without shattering the unity of our church, end quote. The Detroit Free Press agreed, publishing the headline, which might have caused more than a few people in the Adventist church to spit out their morning coffee, I mean, water, quote, Adventists succeed at integration, end quote. Adventists succeed? <laughs> a religious writer for the Free Press wrote that Adventists are, quote, one of the most integrated denominations in the United States, end quote. Again, I'll refer you to our previous episode on the color line, part nine, to realize how ambitious of a headline that was. The Free Press interviewed three black Adventist leaders, Louis B. Reynolds, Frank Peterson, and E.E. E. Cleveland, to prove the point. All spoke positively about the church's record on race relations, with Cleveland going so far as to say that he believed the Adventist denomination would elect a black president, which did eventually happen. Cleveland didn't shy away from making his own support for civil rights movement. He told the reporter that he had marched with Martin Luther King as early as 1954, and that he would have been there at Selma, and he would have been there for the march on Washington if he hadn't been in Africa at the time. Yet even Cleveland had to admit that one institution hadn't yet been integrated, Bass Memorial Academy in Mississippi. But don't hold that against us, Cleveland said. Quote, come to think of it, we haven't had any Negro applicants there yet, end quote. Well, to drive the point home, realizing this was a hot topic in their day, the delegates at the session voted that, quote, no distinction on account of nationality, race, or caste is recognized by God. Christ came to demolish every wall of partition, end quote. Well, look, this is not the color line part 10, so I'm not going to comment on that too much, but there's a few things I would like to say about that. I guess... Better late than never. This was all part of what Figure called his middle-of-the-road approach to problems. And as he told the delegates, quote, one of the former presidents of the United States said that the middle of the road is the place where constructive work is done, not on the side of extremism or of liberalism, but in the middle of the road, end quote. Okay, well, that wouldn't quite be the policy of Figure's successor. Rumor had it that the presidency was down to two men. Curiously, the Detroit Free Press said that there was a behind-the-scenes plan in place to move Figure out of the way in favor of a younger man, but that this was unnecessary in light of his retirement. Take that with a grain of salt, but the two candidates waiting in the wings were apparently 45-year-old Neil C. Wilson, who was the Michigan Conference president, and 55-year-old Robert H. Pearson, president of the Trans-Africa Division. Another article suggested that there was a third man considered by the nominating committee, but I'm not sure who that would have been. 
Neil Wilson would have to wait a little longer for his chance in the chair. This was still an older man's show. Wilson, however, had the honor of introducing the governor of Michigan, a man named George Romney, whose son, for those who don't follow U.S. politics, still serves in the Senate. Wilson even gave Romney a set of the SDA Bible commentary, and Romney's wife, Lenore, would be speaking at the Michigan camp meeting two months later. There were 20,000 Adventists in Michigan, and George Romney was months away from announcing his candidacy for the presidency of the United States, but I'm sure that had nothing to do with that. Aside from the honor of trying to convert his Mormon governor, Wilson was also elected as vice president of the GC for North America, a role that would later be called North American Division President. As I've said, these issues surrounding Ellen White, the nature of her inspiration, the extent of her expertise, her borrowing from contemporary authors, uh, and the scope of her counsel, right? How does it apply in the 1960s or 70s or 80s or 90s or whatever? All of these things have been known quietly known, that these issues had finally spilled out into the public during Robert H. Pearson's administration wasn't his fault, it was something that was generations in the making. Adventist schools had been on the slow march toward accreditation. This increasingly meant needing professors, trustees, with doctorates, doctorates which you could often obtain only from non-Adventist schools. And if you're going to go to non-Adventist schools, try to go to the best schools. In past episodes, we've talked about the Bible Research Fellowship in the 1940s and how these newly minted scholars began connecting with one another and wanting more. We've talked about how the General Conference was a little suspicious in one of these scholarly meetings under church leadership. And this helped lead to the 1952 Bible Conference, which had all of the trimmings of a scholarly meeting with little of the academic freedom. Church leaders saw the need to have graduate schools, in fact, Figure championed this, so that they could train their own scholars. But you needed scholars to run these schools, scholars who had to be trained at outside schools and who would undoubtedly bring some of those ideas from those outside schools to the graduate school, to the church's graduate schools. And now, another generation had gotten their doctorates, and so the pressure to have this conversation about Ellen White and other issues in the Adventist church grew. It was the elephant in the room, if you'll excuse that very, very, very tired saying. Two months after taking office, Pearson toured Andrews University. It had changed its name in 1960 from Emmanuel Missionary College to Andrews University. It was a time of student protest and ideological experiments at public universities. And Andrews, even as a general conference school, was not immune to the spirit of change. And it wasn't just from the students. Pearson had an immediate problem with Andrews' chair of the education department, Frederick E.J. Harder. Harder had presented a talk at Southern on Christian commitment and intellectual achievement, where he argued against anti-intellectualism and the indoctrination of students in Adventist schools. The printed version of the talk reached Pearson, who immediately sent it out to trusted advisors for a word on what to do about it. Some of those advisors were up in arms, just as Pearson felt, they should be, but others, including review editor Ken Wood, review and Herald book editor Ray Cottrell, GC secretary Walter Beach, didn't mind Harder's talk, even if they thought some of his expressions were a little too sharp. And for that matter, the GC education secretary didn't have much of a problem with it either. So the issue lay dormant for now. Pearson's attention was turned west to the other general conference school, Loma Linda. 
Adventist doctors and nurses had always been on the same wage scale as other church employees, but as nursing unions in the area were negotiating higher and higher and higher wages, well, it raised pressure on Loma Linda. Now, the answer to this had always been denominational loyalty. If you work for the church, you're expected to sacrifice. You don't do it for the money. But that line of reasoning wasn't enough for everyone, and the institution began raising salaries without church approval. That, of course, made doctors feel cheated because suddenly nurses were getting paid money that was close to their salary, and so they needed more money. And then when those doctors moved out of the School of Medicine and they began teaching science classes, well, they didn't want to earn less. And of course, if Loma Linda teachers were getting paid so much, teachers at other Adventist universities wanted to work there. And this ended up annoying Richard Hamill, who was the new president of Andrews. And while Pearson was dealing with Loma Linda, fires started back up at Andrews. It was like playing whack-a-mole. Arthur White, Ellen White's grandson, reported to Pearson that a dozen students had complained about the liberalism of seminary teachers. He did this in a 10-page letter. Now, Arthur White's own nephew, a student at the seminary in those years, didn't find liberalism, but he did admit that he had been warned about attending the seminary before he got there. Side note, if you have been an Adventist for some time and you've heard a preacher claim that the seminary or some other Adventist school is heretical and, and bad things are happening in secret there, then you should understand that this has been going on for about as long as Adventists have operated institutions of higher learning. There's been a mixture of appreciation and suspicion of scholars from the days of the Battle Creek College onward. Well, in those days, the age of the earth was one of those hot issues. Ellen White had written in Spiritual Gifts, Volume 3, that, quote, the world is now only about 6,000 years old, end quote. Well, how do you square that with what everybody else is saying in that the earth is much, much older? And as one student put it to Arthur Maxwell, quote, if she was in error here, how may we know that she is not in error on other points, end quote. What's more, students were telling Arthur White that some professors were asking them to study the big theologians of their day, like Karl Barth, Rudolf Bultmann. And Arthur White asked, quote, Is this the price that we, as a denomination, must pay for higher learning? Is this the cost of scholastic attainment? Is this the result of academic freedom? Where will we be as a denomination within a few years? End quote. Well, if Robert Howard Pearson had anything to do about it, the denomination would get back to its conservative roots. Pearson had his ears open for anything that even smelled liberal. Wait, he had his ears open for anything that smelled liberal? You know, I could have corrected this in the script, but it's just one of those mistakes that's just so funny. Why correct it? Anyways, when the Washington Sanitarium started serving meat, Pearson pounced. The sanitarium board chair explained that meat was only served to deal with specific dietary circumstances. It wasn't on the menu for anyone to order. And while Pearson could understand the chair's medical reasoning, he didn't like it. It was a sign of what he called the gradual erosion of Adventist principles. And all of this and more happened by the end of the first six months of Pearson's administration. It was like a, like a chef trying to keep an eye on the entire restaurant. Loma Linda, in particular, was emerging as its own kind of city-state in the Adventist empire. Everywhere, Adventism's troops, they saluted the Adventist flag, they said the Pledge of Allegiance, but President Pearson felt he could detect evidence of betrayal, of disloyalty. The salute, perhaps, wasn't as smart as it should be. The troops shuffled their feet a little bit too much while marching. You couldn't always put your finger on one big thing that was wrong. 
It was like the serving of meat at the Washington Sanitarium, or it was the reading of Bultmann at Andrews. It was the pay scale at Loma Linda. It was the speech on academic freedom at Southern. To Pearson, this neo-Adventism, more on that in a moment, was like Hydra. It had infiltrated Adventism. It had heads everywhere, and when you seem to just cut one off, two more seem to grow back in its place. This group of Adventist thinkers willing to have hard conversations about Ellen White, the age of the earth, and other subjects were derisively dubbed neo-Adventists by Leroy Froome, who had been taking shots at this group since at least the early 1940s. In an issue of ministry back in 1949, we find this complaint about those who, quote, hold to a sort of neo-Adventism. Such minds may be content with accommodative, tentative, or relative positions that attempt to straddle Adventist and modernist attitudes, but the rank and file of us cannot operate on a nebulous, non-committal platform on fundamental principles and positions of faith. It does not comport with strong Adventism, end quote. Now, this hits at a, at a point of pain among more intellectual Adventists. The understanding that you don't have all of the answers, while the, the more traditional or conservative Adventists are not paralyzed by the same lack of answers, right? They, they can have confidence because they have an answer for everything. They can pound their fist on the pulpit with conviction. The neo-Avenists can, can scoff that those conservatives are still using the King James Version, even though every scholar knows that the Textus Receptus is faulty. They can feel more intellectually honest, more rigorous in their investigation of the truth, but they seldom seem to be able to muster the same levels of conviction. There's a certain simplicity and accessibility to being able to just read what Ellen White says and accept it, especially if the alternative is you have to go to some school, read 20 different theologians, and wrestle with 30 different points of view of the text. Because now we have to speak in probabilities, not certainties. But J.N. Andrews didn't travel to Switzerland as the church's first official missionary and die for the probability that the Adventist understanding of Scripture might be accurate. He had certainty, and that's what motivated him. Froome concluded early on that these, that these neo-Avenists seemed less able to motivate missionaries to give their lives or to keep a diverse global denomination in order. While Froome was no intellectual slouch himself, he nevertheless saw neo-Adventists as a cancer in the church body. They will sap our strength. They will undermine our faith. It's not that every question the neo-Avenists raise is wrong. It's, it's, it's like the meat issue at the Washington Sanitarium. Pearson could see the point in this one instance. But it just never seems to stop there. It's a million little points in a million little instances that are just tugging at the threads in the Avenus tapestry. And once you pull these threads and you unravel this Avenus tapestry, can you ever put it back together? And yet the questions about Ellen White, the age of the earth, the investigative judgment, wouldn't just go away. Once you've thought of them, you can't just fall back in line and carry on. You sit there in Sabbath school in your local church and you listen to the teacher say that every word of Ellen White was inspired and you just bite your tongue. Ten years ago, you were on the same page with your fellow church members. Then you went to school. Then you read books. Now you have questions. Now you feel alone in your local church. But didn't Ellen White tell us not to be mere reflectors of other men's thoughts? Aren't we to study for ourselves? But if Ellen White is always the final answer on every point of, of, of Christianity, then what's the point of asking any questions? 
Why not just slavishly do whatever she says without thinking? Now, if you're feeling torn between the points being made by both sides of this issue, then I think I've done my job in this episode because I want you to see both groups through each other's eyes. I hope it gives you something to think about, something to talk about, because if you're new here, by the way, then you should know that my goal isn't to tell you what to think, but to invite you to think on these things. So go share this episode. Start a conversation with someone about it. There's much, much more that we're going to be talking about along these lines. Because President Pearson is just getting started. But before we continue this story, we're going to let Pearson get acclimated to his new job. Because we have to talk about a few other things first. First up, there's a little disagreement happening in Southeast Asia in a place called... Hold on, let me get my map. Uh, China... Malaysia, Thailand. Oh, yeah, Vietnam. Yeah, let's talk about that. We'll see you next time. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.